Good morning. This morning's verse is 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. How you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this uh, awesome opportunity that we get um, every Sunday to, uh, to gather together to, uh, to worship you, uh, the one who is worthy, the only one who's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. So God, we just want to continue to make much of you. We want to, uh, we pray God that you would, uh, we'd be reminded of, uh, of our great salvation, of what a great God we worship. And I pray, God, that, um, that we would leave here today more in love with you, uh, more understanding of your love towards us, and, God, that we would be uh, compelled to go out and share the best news that anyone will ever hear with this lost and dying world. And God, only you know uh, the hearts of the people that are here today. Only you know uh, the trouble that we've had in the last week, the last couple of hours. And I pray, Father, um, that, that you would uh, make each of us more like you uh, for your glory and for the good of your people. We love you and ask, God, that you would empower me to be your spokesman this morning. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. amen. So Tuesday... By the way, let me just, for those of you that don't know what happened, most of you know what happened, it, it, was, uh, it was a six-month-old baby, and uh, she, was, she was crawling across the street, a big semi was coming, and uh, nobody else was willing to go out there and risk their life but me. So I took a hit for the baby. Now, it's, it's a first-world problem, actually. You pay $110 a month for a gym membership, and you hurt yourself trying to stay healthy. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful to be here at surgery on Tuesday. They uh, reattached my bicep to, to this bone right here. If you want to see pictures afterwards, just talk to my wife, Nancy. I've seen all the pictures. And I mean, I'm wondering, I was just talking to Ethan and, I, and his wife, Erin. I was just thinking, he, that surgeon took a picture of my arm on Thursday, like the, like the gaping hole. And the only thing that he could have done worse is like, like a selfie while he's doing it. I don't know what was going on. So other than my surgery on Tuesday, which was the 31st, what else is significant about Tuesday, the 31st of October? Halloween and 
Reformation, right? 500 years, 500 years of the Reformation. And um, we stand um, with other Protestants, other Christians um, worldwide in for what, um, what the Reformation stands for. And I'm going to actually read you, because it connects very well with today's sermon, I'm going to read you um, an uh, excerpt from the Gospel Coalition. And uh, the words will be up on the screen there where you can follow along. Today, we join millions of Christians around the world in celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This was Tuesday. Granted, dates like this, like these, are hard to pin down. Who's to say when something as big as the Reformation actually began? And what about those who labored for reform long before October 31st, 1517? Nevertheless, for centuries, Protestants have instinctively recognized that a providential series of events was set in motion on this day 500 years ago when a German professor named Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg. We give thanks for Luther, flawed and fallible though he was, for the role he played in igniting a reform movement that caught fire in the cities of the Holy Roman Empire, spread through the rest of Europe, and now reaches the end of the earth. Wherever we find scripture alone as the highest and final authority, grace alone is the only hope for resurrecting spiritually dead sinners, faith alone is the only instrument for which we are joined to Christ and justified by the imputation of his righteousness, Christ alone is the only atoning sacrifice for sin, and God alone is the ultimate object of our worship. Wherever we find these truths, sung, savored, and celebrated, we have reason to rejoice in the Reformation. But we do more on this day than give thanks for the past. We also marvel at what we see in the present. Who but God could have foreseen the triumphs of the gospel in the last 500 years? From the planting of Reformation churches in the New World, to the explosion of Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa, to revivals in Korea, to the endurance and now the spectacular growth of the church in China, to the renewed gospel vibrancy in places as, as diverse as Australia, the Arabian Peninsula, Brazil, and India. Who but God could have known once the Bible was translated into English and German and French, it would be also translated into Albanian, Cambodian, Japanese, uh, yeah, Navajo, Swahili, and the P word. Who but God could have predicted that with the advent of airplanes, radios, and the internet, the good news of justification by faith alone in Christ alone through grace alone would be available to more people in more places than at any previous time in history. This is the Lord's doing, and this should be marvelous in our eyes. And yet we're not blind to the challenges facing the church. Secularization in the former countries of Christendom, opposition to biblical orthodoxy in the West, and increasing violence against the church in parts of the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. Theological heterodoxy holds sway in too many places, as do grinding poverty on the one hand and affluent indifference on the other. And this is to say nothing of rising racial tensions, widespread nominalism, nominalism, and the plight of those numbering in the billions who have no access to the gospel. But scripture tells us that the word of God is not bound. What we know from the Bible and have seen in history, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We expect to see in the years, we expect to see this in the years ahead. We're not confident in ourselves or in our ministries. We're not confident. Our confidence is not in this church. We are but a vapor, a mist 
that appears and then vanishes away. We will not change the world or even a single human heart, but we know the one who can and does. The God who Luther proclaimed is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's our God too. Though cultures change, and the church when at times, and the church with it at times, the head of the church does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so on this monumentous day, monu- monumentous day, when we celebrate the rediscovery of the gospel and the recovery of true worship, we commit ourselves once again to the worship of our triune God and the glad-hearted declaration of this gospel. And if the Lord should tarry another half millennium, our prayer is not, first of all, for another Luther, but that we may be an instrument in the Lord's hands, just as Luther was. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. What great words. What a great time that we get to live in on this side of the Reformation. As I was thinking through this letter, this second letter of Paul to Timothy, I was putting myself in Timothy's shoes and wondering what it is that he dealt with. And how was it different than maybe a a pastor today or or a Christian today might deal with? And I think there's some some real similarities, actually. Where there was, um, Timothy was a a young man. He was, uh, hasn't been that long in Christ, maybe a decade or so. Um, he, is, uh, he is being handed the gospel baton in, uh, mo- in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. He's got to be scared. Paul is on uh, death row. We saw last week where uh, Chris taught us in uh, chapter 3, verses um, 1 through 8. We saw the condition of the church and the type of people that were coming into the church. It says in the last days, in verse 2, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but but denying its power. And Chris so aptly reminded us last week that the last days then, we were in the last days then and we're in the last days today. And the last days is simply living in the gap between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. And we know that there's going to be opposition to the gospel. And we know, that we know also that one of the ways that the enemy is going to oppose the gospel is by raising up a, a godly crowd, a righteous crowd, a, a crowd that, that has a godliness with no power. That their religion is a morality. And I feel like... What Timothy dealt with is the same thing that we are going to be dealing with until Jesus comes back. In this letter, Timothy, Paul addresses Timothy two times in this short letter, actually in this short section of scripture, what we're looking at today. He says, but you, or you however, this is how the world lives, this is how the the moral unregenerate lives, this is how the pretenders live, but you, Timothy, or you however, Timothy, as he's given the, ch- the church his final instructions, he makes some masterful contrasts in how Timothy should live and behave in contrast to religious people and their leaders who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. Maybe the first sermon you've ever heard from a pastor on narcotics. I'm not. I'm on Advil. He says this in verse 10. 
You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy is saying two things here. He's saying, remember two things, Timothy. Paul is saying this. Timothy, remember two things. Remember the way that I lived. Remember my life. And remember the sufficiency of God's word. Remember the sufficiency of God's word. First, remember what you observed in my life. What, what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that he's not saying, uh, Timothy, you have, followed, you have followed in my steps. He's saying, as you have followed me, as you've watched me, it's like following somebody on Facebook, that he's actually watching, he's following Paul, he knows all about Paul's life. So Paul says, Paul says, you, however, have followed my teaching. You, have, you know my teaching, you know my conduct, you know my aim in life, you know my faith, you know my patience, you know my love, you know my steadfastness, you know my suffering. In verses 10 through 11, Paul seems to be boasting here, does he not? I mean, I, we don't do that. Like, as you know, I've, I've just watched my conduct. Just watched my patience. I'm such a loving guy. But what Paul is saying here, he's really emphasizing and giving evidence that his life matched his teaching. His life matched his teaching. You, however, you followed my teaching, now follow my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience. Follow my suffering. He must be convinced. Paul must be convinced he must believe his teaching if he lives it and he's willing to suffer for it. He's reminding Timothy of such. What we believe we're willing to die for. And Paul here is talking about both belief and practice. Paul's making a case here that his teaching is God's teaching and it's, and it's to be followed. I'm going to get to this in a minute, but I believe Paul knows that he's right in Scripture. I believe Paul knows that, that his words are God's words. These words that he's penning are scripture. But he also says, follow me. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 4, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I urge you, be imitators of me. Philippians 3 and Philippians 4, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Over the years, you've probably known people that have rejected Christianity. At one point, they, they embraced it and they rejected it. And I'll say this right up front, that, that there's no way that a believer can lose their salvation. There's something called the perseverance of the saints, that if you are in Christ, you will perse persevere to the end. doesn't mean that you're not going to question along the way. doesn't, mind, uh, doesn't mean there's not going to be bumps in the road. But as I've seen people fall away from Christianity, if you would give me the grace on that term, where they've rejected it, where they once embraced it, there's usually a story, there's usually a name about a hypocrite in their life. There's usually somebody that took them or went to church every Sunday and went to Bible studies and their life did not match what they professed to believe. They were they were. Hypocrites. And at some level, I understand we are all hypocrites. These are people that maybe had parents who professed a certain faith, who taught a certain doctrine, but their life didn't match what they professed. And this was not the case for Paul. 
He wanted to remind Timothy of the life he lived of submission to and sacrifice for his Lord and Savior. His life matched his teaching. And don't get all wound up in knots this morning because we're all imperfect. We know that the gospel is about direction, not perfection. We all know that God came to save sinners and that we're not going to be, we're going to be, um, he's going to see us as righteous. He's going to see us in perfection. He's going to see us because we are in Christ. But he doesn't expect perfection because he knows that while we're in this flesh suit that we can never attain it. But there should be a direction. There should be a growing desire for our life by the power of the Holy Spirit being informed by the Word of God. There should be a a trajectory of our life matching what it is that we believe. So Paul says, Paul says, you, however, have followed my teaching. Now he talks about his practice. He says, my conduct. He says, he's not, Paul isn't one to say, that says, you know, just do what I say. Don't do what I do. As parents, we've probably done that. Yeah, I don't care how I act. You just do what I do. I'm the boss. Paul is saying, I want you to live your life like my life as I live after Christ's life. Follow my conduct, my aim in life. His aim was to follow hard after Christ, to praise the living God. My patience, this has to do with patience with people. He says, follow my love, follow my steadfastness. This one really struck me, that steadfastness is birthed out of hope. That that we can't endure in faithfulness unless we have a secure hope. You see, when we waver, when, when we lose perseverance, when we stop enduring, it's because we have our hope wrongly placed. We have our hope in a healing. We have our hope in financial security. We have our hope in obedient kids. Now, can we pray for these things? And does God want us to? Absolutely. But our hope, hope gives birth to perseverance. If you're not persevering, if you find yourself tired and not in a word and mad at God, it's because you've lost hope. You're not persevering because, because you've lost hope, therefore you're not giving birth to steadfastness or perseverance. And then he goes on to remind Timothy in these verses, he reminds Timothy of his persecutions and suffering, that you saw me persecuted and you saw me suffering. He reminds Timothy that his faith, his teaching, and his life didn't change even when the heat was turned up. You see, our true stripes and what we truly believe become evident when we're tested and persecuted for our faith. Is anybody subscribed to VOM Magazine, Voice of the Martyrs? If you, if you don't, I'd really encourage you to get it. It's free. Um, they'll send it to you every month, and it's stories after stories of brothers and sisters in Christ that we're going to be worshiping the triune God with one day that are being persecuted for their faith. And they're not tucking tail and running, but they're continuing to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they believe the gospel and their life didn't change when the heat was turned up. And then Paul goes on to remind Timothy that, that he was rescued time and time again as, as he was stoned and beaten and dragged outside the city and left for dead. We see these accounts in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And my guess is this brought, he, he's, he told Timothy this to bring him encouragement. That, that you have watched me suffer, Timothy. 
You have watched me be persecuted. You have watched me be stoned. You've watched me be kicked out of towns. You've watched me be beaten, be left for dead. But God rescued me every time. But Timothy had to know where Paul is at right now. Paul's on death row. And there ain't no being rescued this time. Or is there? You see, what Paul knew is what Timothy knew, and every believer should know, is that our ultimate rescue, we may not be rescued from our trials, this side of the finish line, but one day we'll be rescued from any trial that comes our way. And there's nothing that will thwart God's hand. If he wants us rescued this side of eternity, he'll rescue us. If he wants us to persevere in hope this side, and, uh, and not rescue us to the other side of eternity, he'll do that. But nothing can thwart God's plan for the spread of his gospel. Let's look at verse 12. He then throws this little reality check. It's fine that he's talking to Timothy. You know, Timothy is going to be like the missionary in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, and he says that you're probably going to suffer and be persecuted. But why did he have to throw verse 12 in there? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does all mean? You know what the Greek is for all? All. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And don't, don't miss this. It doesn't say those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. He could have said that. He said those who desire to live a godly life in what? In Christ Jesus. Jesus. It's the name Jesus that offends. There's all kinds of people from every faith, every tribe, every religion that want to live a godly life. But it's those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. I was just thinking about, we were, Nancy and I were in um, Old Town on Monday for our, our date morning. We had breakfast at Snooze. We had another half hour on our parking meter. You get two hours. We decided to do a little walk around. And we're walking through... Um, the, the kitchen there on College and Mountain, and uh, this uh, tall, um, young black dude from the UK says, hey, sir. And then he, I guess he saw the way that I looked at him. He says, I don't want money. He says, I don't want money. He says, he says I want food. I go, okay, I can do that. I'm a conditional lover. So we took him to Subway he actually mentioned Subway. Nancy and I took him to Subway. We, we stood in line while he ordered his food, and he looked at me, and I go, yep, just get a 12-inch. 12-inch cookie, Coke, big Coke. And then at the end, I was just thinking, uh, I knew our meter was running out, and, and I thought for a minute we should sit down with him and eat lunch with him and share the gospel. I didn't because I didn't want a parking ticket. But I did say this. I said, I want you to know that I give this to you in the name of Jesus Christ. I wanted him to know that I'm just, I'm just not another um, moral, godly, um, uh, wanting to do good person on the street. That, that genuinely, that, that the reason that we even encountered him is because of God's kindness in our life. And I, and I say that not to, uh, I, I guess I said in the way of, of both testimony and also uh, confession. But we are going to be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Jesus said it in John 15, 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And there are two necessary ingredients, required ingredients to be persecuted for those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Two necessary ingredients. Um, you may not want to write these down because I'm actually giving you the recipe for persecution. But I'd encourage you to listen in. Here's the two ingredients. You have to be in the world and you have to be in Christ Jesus. In the world and in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul envisioned that Christ's followers would be both in the world, living among godless people, and at the same time, not of the world, living a godly life in Christ. You see, those who are in Christ but not in the world, won't be persecuted. And they won't be persecuted because they do not come in contact and therefore into collision with their potential persecutors. Those who are in the world, but not in Christ, or, or do not have a desire to live a godly life in Christ, they're also not persecuted because the world sees nothing in them to persecute. The former escape persecution by withdrawal from the world, the latter by assimilation into the world. It's only for those who are both in the world and in Christ simultaneously that persecution becomes inevitable. And I've started asking myself the question, why am I not being persecuted? There's a ton of hostility to Christianity. To Christianity. There's not a ton of hostility towards Dan Hardy. And I would say this, we should do nothing to try to be persecuted. That's not God's best. We shouldn't go out in front of a truck when we know the truck's going to hurt us. But we should ask the question, God, why am I not being persecuted? Am I not in the world? Do I not have non-Christian friends? Am I not in a place where people are hostile to Christianity? Or am I in that place, but I'm assimilating into it, and I'm not standing firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, I actually don't want people at the gym to know that I'm just a good guy. I'm just a pastor that works out. I'm actually tired of that. I want people to know that I'm a son of the living God and that I will die for that. I want people to know that. I'd rather not die. I'd rather them come to Christ. But I want to live that way. Jesus, again, in chapter 16 of John, he said this. He said, I say these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. I thought he just said that in me, you may have peace. I say these things so you have peace, and in the world, you will have tribulation. How does that give us any kind of peace? And he finishes the sentence. He says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Believe that, that I have overcome the world. Then you'll be able to live a steadfast, persevering life. 
Verse 13, he talks about these evil people and imposters. He says that these, these ones who deceive and are being deceived, they won't be persecuted. They will, con- they will actually go on, and they're going on, or their progress is actually backwards. They go from bad to worse. You see, it's good to remember that what we have learned and observed from the lives of other faithful Christians, it's good to know that there's actually evil people out there, deceivers, and ones who are being deceived. And it's good to look for other examples of people that have lived well in the midst of that, in spite of that. But the key to living a godly life in Christ Jesus is continuing in what you believed. So in verse 14, he says, but as for you, Timothy, again, but as for you, Timothy, in contrast to the evil people and imposters who are deceived and being deceived, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Now, we could have just said, continue in what you've learned. You see, learning actually, if it stops there, it does nothing. The most important 12 inches, Gary Cooper reminded me this the other day, the most important 12 inches that a a man or woman has is from the head to the heart. Because if what you learn never becomes what you believe, we'll never live in a way that is pleasing to God. We'll never live in a way where other people will come to faith through our testimony. See, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue in as a sense of perseverance. It's offensive rather than simply enduring. It's from the same word of abide in. Continue in, abide in. 1 John 2, 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you, will, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. Verse 15. And I've already hit on this. Don't continue on what you've learned, but, but what you believe, what you've been assured of, what you've been firmly persuaded in. Parents, teachers, children's teachers, parents, teach your kids. Teach your kids the living, active, abiding word of God. But pray that God would drive it from their head to their heart. Pray that God would take what they've learned and it would be seeds of regeneration in their heart. We're saved by faith in what we've learned. We're not saved by learning. Paul reminds Timothy and his congregation, remember what you have learned and you firmly believed. And he reminds Timothy of the sacred writings that he had heard about from his, from his youth. These, this is the Old Testament that his mother and his grandmother taught him. Remember what the Old Testament does. Some of you have read the Old Testament for years, and, and, and what you teach your kids is that, that Daniel, you got to be a Daniel. you got to be a David. you got to be a strong leader. you gotta, you got to stand up to your giants. There's some, there's some lessons like that in there that are, that are tertiary lessons. But the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. I love this. When, when Jesus' friends went to the tomb and, and he was gone, Jesus appeared to them on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said this to them. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Teach the word to your kids and remind them that it all points to a broken world where every human being deserves uh, eternal separation from God, the Father. But because of Jesus' sacrificial life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension on high, by faith we can be saved. By grace we can be saved through faith. I also believe that Paul is stating here that his teaching is Scripture. And I'm going to, in the, in the notes for community groups, I'm going to give you a few of these references. But several times in the New Testament, Paul claims to be speaking in the name of and with the authority of Christ. He actually calls his message the Word of God. And once he says that in, in communicating to others what God has revealed to him, he uses the word not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Peter considered Paul's letters as scriptures as well. So what he's being encouraged to do, encouraged Timothy to do, and he's encouraging us to do, is to endure, drink deeply of, stand in, abide in, sola scriptura, that you learned and believed. Brothers and sisters, in this um, age of uh, individuality, there's no new Christianity. There's no new morality. There's no new theology. There's no new doctrine. There's no new special revelation. And I can say this, that I don't care what a religion looks like on the outside. If they, if they believe that there is um, additional revelation to God's word, additional revelation, it's, it's untrue and it's heresy. There is nothing new under the sun. And as I close off in first, uh, verses 15b, second half of verse 15 and, and verse 17, we see both the source and the purpose of the Bible. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is inspired. Paul affirmed this with, with elegant finality that, that all Scripture is God's breath. It's from Him. And you can hear the meaning in the transliteration of the Greek word. God breathed. He put together two words, the Greek words for God and breath. And more literally, all Scripture is breathed into by God. All Scripture. There is nothing in here. I heard of a sermon the other day where the guy got up front and he tore out things like the virgin, uh, the virgin birth. He tore out the pages that talked about the resurrection. He tore, he tore out the pages on, on, um, on divorce. And he said, just read it however you want to read it. Just pick and choose which parts of this is true. And his point was is that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is, is, is profitable. You see, when, when you speak, when I speak, your word and my word is you breathed or breathe from me. It's your breath. It's conditioned by your mind. It pours forth in your speech. Your breath out of your words. This belief that scripture is breathed out by God perfectly expresses the view of the first century Jews about Old Testament writings. Listen to what Peter said. No prophecy of scripture no Old Testament writing comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. These men didn't have an agenda. They were writing for God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
The Old Testament scriptures were God-breathed. They were God words. Now the scriptures, why should you read them? Why should you be in them? Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you've been a believer for 20 years and you know everything in God's word. You're living on old bread. He says because the scriptures are profitable. They're good for us. And Paul uses two pairs of words in verses 16 to flesh out the scripture's usefulness or profitability, if you will. He says, teach, it's, uh, the, the first category is teaching and for reproof. The second category is correction and for training in righteousness. The first pair, teaching and reproof, it has to do with doctrine. I know some of us don't, some of you don't like doctrine. It's like, why do I have to know doctrine? Because when the heat gets turned up, you better know what you believe. When the heat gets turned up, you better know what you believe. All of Scripture is profitable for teaching. This is why the whole of both Testaments must be studied and it must be taught. That's why here we try to teach the entire counsel of God. We taught through a poetic book in the beginning of this year, Job. We've taught through um, um, some of the, the, the uh, um, uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, next year, we're going to be teaching through either an apocalyptic book like Revelation or a Old Testament narrative like Exodus. I've been fasting and praying every day that it would not be Revelation. <laughs> but we need to study through and read through and teach through all of Scripture, all of the didactic Scripture, the poetic, the narrative, the apocalyptic, the proverbial, proverbial, proverbial sections. Easy for me to say. Because it makes up the entire tapestry of God's word. And when we study that way, when we teach that way, there will also be reproof. That God's word is profitable for reproof or conviction. You see, if you are learning God's word, if you're studying God's word, and you go study after study after study, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, and there's no conviction. It's right here. That God's word is profitable for reproof or conviction. Those true to the scriptures can't escape this duty. God's word, studying God's word, sitting under the teaching of God's word without conviction is to stay in a place of learning without growing. I love Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Have you ever read a scripture 10 times? hundred times, and then you read it one more time, you go, wow, I never saw that. Praise be to God. It's living, it's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, as we look at God's word, it looks at us. As we study God's word, it studies us. It's like a mirror reflecting what's going on in our heart. The second pair that we see in these verses is correction and training in righteousness. And these have to do with conduct. Correction comes from the Greek word for straight in the New Living Translation um, because it's a helpful rendering. It says it straightens us out, God's word does. It's profitable for not just convicting us, but straighten us out. Those who accept its reproof, those of us who accept its correction will begin to find their lives straightening out. We've had, we've had a couple in here um, in the last year that, was, um, that were believers and they were actually living together. And they, they came to the marriage conference and there was teaching on, on, on Christians living together outside of marriage. 
They looked at God's word. It convicted them. And then it corrected them. We got to have a wedding two months later. Don't be afraid to let God's word convict you. And then humbly let the Holy Spirit and his word straighten you out. And then after that, we're ready for the word's positive effect of training in righteousness. This is the righteousness that comes to every believer by faith and is actualized by the training of God's word. You see, being in God's word doesn't make you any more loved. It doesn't make you any more saved. It doesn't mean that you're going to get a bigger room in heaven. It means that it's profitable for you right now to live a life in joyful submission to the Father. It's for your good and His glory. What purpose then? What's the ultimate purpose? He gives that to us in verse 17. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And the man of God here is it's referring to, uh, it's an Old Testament um, identifier of a prophet. And he's calling Timothy a man of God. He's saying, Timothy, this will complete you. This will equip you. And I can just, I can just imagine Timothy as he's reading the, the, the last part of this letter talking about um, what the world is going to be like in the last days, in his time and now. He's going, how do I change people? It's not his job to change anybody. It's not your job to change anybody. It's the Word's job through the, through the, through the Holy Spirit. So this is for Timothy, it's also for you and I, that the man of God, the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, whatever the, God, whatever the Lord leads you to, whatever ministry he wants you involved in, whether it be the worship ministry, whether it be children's ministry, whether it be the care team, whether it be making coffee, greeting, children's workers, youth, serving on the women's ministry team, he will complete you. His word will make you complete and equip you for every good work. Let me give you another example. Some of the good work that you are, some of you are called to do is, is persevering through pain, through suffering, physical pain, emotional pain, tough marriages, tough kids, tough job. He says it's the word of God that will, will make you complete and equipped for every good work. Whatever God calls you to, he will strengthen you. The book of Deuteronomy records that when Moses had finished writing the words of the law and he gave it to the Levite priests to place beside the ark, he said this, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law for it is no empty word for you but your very life. And then somebody mentioned Psalm 119 earlier. I don't know if it was Chris or somebody from up front did. And maybe it was somebody out there. But there's 176 verses in Psalm 119. And it's a celebration of Scripture. It's a celebration of sola gratia. And in this section, these 176 verses, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And all 22 of these letters are used in Psalm 119. In effect, what the psalmist is saying is that God's word is everything from A to Z, that the scriptures are life. When Jesus began his ministry, 
He was tempted by Satan. He had a complete knowledge of the word that enabled him to defeat the tempter with three quotations from Deuteronomy. He didn't say, depart from me, Satan. He quoted scripture. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, leaned on the sufficiency of Scripture in his hour of need. Indeed, his summary response, his summary response to the tempter was like a bookend to what Mo- Moses declared, and that the Scriptures are your life. For Jesus insisted, he said this, that they, that they are the soul's essential food. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The scriptures were life to Moses and food to Jesus. They cannot and must not be anything less to us. They are the very breath of God. They are our breath, our life, our food. I'm going to finish with this. Solar scripture. We stand on nothing else. Scripture is the final authority. Scripture is God's word breathed out. Sola Scriptura was not invented by the Reformers 500 years ago, but it was rescued and reasserted by the Reformers. And I love this by Michael Kruger. Put simply, the Reformers were not innovators, but they were excavators. Like archaeologists, they viewed themselves as merely uncovering what had been lost in the sands of time. One might argue, therefore, that Sola Scriptura has much to say to the modern evangelical church, which struggles profoundly with an individualistic Tendency, what you believe is good for you, what I believe is good for me. And in closing, I want you to consider the words of John Whitcomb. The Christian who will be most effectively used by God in winning people to Christ is not necessarily the one who knows the most about secular philosophy, psychology, history, archaeology, or natural science, but rather the Christian who knows most about God's word and who humbly seeks God's daily strength and wisdom in obeying it. The best Christian apologist is the best student of Scripture. Let's pray. God, I, uh, even as I, I complete this up here, I, I trust that your word does not return void. I trust that even in my missteps and in my errors, Holy Spirit, that you will uh, bring about change um, in each of our lives. Uh, Lord, I thank you that, that all that we preached here today um, is um, points to the glorious gospel. We thank you that, um, that you uh, rescued us. You rescued us from the power of sin and from the guilt and penalty of sin. You rescued us from the power of Satan. You rescued us from the, the grasp of death. And I thank you that that was all a gift. It was all by grace. And I thank you, God, that you left us here in 2017 in northern Colorado with the complete canon of Scripture. All 66 books that give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that give testimony to the character of God, that give testimony that we were lost and dead in our sins. But God who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. So God, I pray that you would infuse a hunger and a thirst for your word, that we would know more of who you are, 
that would be a mirror of sorts, that you would convict us of sin and righteousness, and that we would be more useful tools in your hand for your glory and for the sake of the elect.